Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Listener, when I think of true crime-related audio that haunts me, the first thing that comes to mind is the Ruth Price 911 call. If you've never heard this call, I'm going to play it now. It's not for the faint of heart. You've been warned. Yeah, uh, this is the Ruth Price of 3877. What's the problem, ma'am? Oh, there's some guy been uh, checking the place out. No. Well, he went in the back. I have an apartment in the back, and he said he was looking for a guy. And he comes to my door. Yes. And said he's uh, looking for an apartment. So I live alone, and I'm an old lady. Mm -hmm. Where where is he now, ma'am? I don't have no idea. For years, this call has been a bit of a mystery for those in the true crime community. Most assume she died, but a large amount of people thought the call was a hoax. You see, there wasn't any information on this call, usually uploaded to forums of dubious morality or YouTube, with nothing more than the title, Ruth Price 911 Call. But that was it, and for years. While digging around for information for what must have been the hundredth time, I ran into a convincing Reddit post. Now usually, I wouldn't waste your time with a Reddit post. But this one has weight. This user put in the work. Trimmed for brevity, I'm going to quote user Far Valuable 5819's post and let you be the judge. As I googled this 911 call, multiple Reddit posts and even an article show up speculating if this 911 call was real or some kind of hoax. Apparently, this 911 call has been circulating the internet for a few decades and first appeared in the late 80s, early 90s. One theory was that it was created as a training call for 911 operators. Over the years, people have tracked down the possible Ruth prices, but have been unable to link them to this 911 call. I do genealogy as a hobby, and love to dig and do research. I started on an ancestry tree on the third option of Ruth Mildred's star price. Ruth Mildred's star was born in Pueblo, Colorado on December 7, 1913 to Thomas O. Starr and Joanna Eagler. Ruth went to Central High School in Pueblo, Colorado. See here for a yearbook photo. Ruth Starr married William Walter Price and both were still listed as living in Pueblo, Colorado in 1935, but then can be found on a 1940 census living in San Diego, California. I also found this Ruth in a 1973, 1975, 1976, 
1978 and 1979 San Diego City Directory, living at 3877 North 35th Street in San Diego. Remember that Ruth in the 911 call said she lived at 3877 before the 911 operator cut her off. It appears that Ruth and William had two daughters and William passed away in 1972. During my research, I found a listing for an obituary for Ruth M. Price of May of 1994 in the San Diego Union Tribune. The entire obituary wasn't being shown, so I went looking for the full obituary. Instead, I found a Ruth M. Price listed in a newspaper section called Assaults on November 3, 1980 in the San Diego Evening Tribune. In this newspaper clipping, it says Ruth M. Price was assaulted on the 3800 block of 35th Street. This newspaper clipping fits the Ruth Price 911 call perfectly. I truly believe that this is the missing piece that identifies the Ruth Price of that unknown 911 call. It wasn't a hoax or a 911 training call. That blood-curdling scream was unfortunately very real. The good news is Ruth, even being older in age, fought off her attacker and lived for another 14 years. Most likely, this 911 call isn't really a 911 call. Apparently, there was no 911 in San Diego in 1980, so most likely Ruth Price was talking to an operator of some kind. Maybe she dialed zero or had reached the police station. The user goes on to include a transcription of the San Diego Evening Tribune article. Officers said Ruth M. Price of the 3800 block of 35th Street was calling police to advise them of a prowler in the area when she was grabbed from behind and choked. She was able to break the attacker's grip after dropping the telephone, screaming, and pulling at the attacker's hands. The youth fled. Price said she did not know why she was assaulted and had never seen the suspect before. 13-year-old Chloe Symington is home alone. She's a straight-A student, but she had to miss school that day. Chloe is sick, so she stuck around while her parents went off to work. Sitting home alone, Chloe hears what for many of us is a worse nightmare. Men are breaking into her home. She looks out the window and sees their van outside of her home on Hammond Street. The 13-year-old girl calls 911 and tells the operator they broke through the garage. 911, where is your emergency? I think there's somebody in my in my house. I don't know who. Okay, what city or township are you in? Harrison Township. What is your address? 38990 Hammond. 38990 what? Hammond. Hammond. Hammond, H-A-M-O-N. I'm 13 years old. I don't know what to do. Okay, hold on one minute. Yeah. Okay, where are you at in the house? I'm in my room upstairs. I hear walking upstairs. I saw someone looking to my door downstairs. Chloe is hiding under her bed. The sound of footsteps in her home. Are you expecting anyone? No. Okay, tell me again what you hear. I don't know, I heard walking downstairs when I walked downstairs when I was looking through the door. And can you describe what this person was? He had like a black hat on, brown jacket, I think. So you think it was a male? <laughs> and you saw a male with a dark hood and a jacket? Hello, don't hang up. Hello, where are you at? Rachel, she saw a male inside. No, she's not answering me. Are you there? Okay. Do you have a closet in your room? 
Okay, they're on their way already. My partner's got them on the way already. I want you to go some... Do you have a lock on your bedroom door? Yeah, they already... They already what? They've are, where are you, under the bed? Okay. Just lay quiet. I can listen, okay? I'm going to listen. Lay the phone down and I'll listen. Okay. Is it one or two people? What is your first What is your first name? Chloe. Chloe? There's two people in the house. They How do you spell your name, hon? Okay. Okay, so you said they've already been up and through your bedroom? Yeah. Okay. You're still under the bed? I'm almost. You what? I'm like halfway up there. Okay. How did they not see you? Was the house locked that you were aware of? Yeah, they went through the garage door, I think. They came through the garage okay. door? Okay. Do you have a dog? Yeah. Did the dog bark? No. Where is the dog at? I think downstairs. What kind of dog? Uh, lab. She has a lab. The dog didn't bark. What? Okay, just stay where you're at, Chloe. Hey. How old is your dog? Or is he locked up or caged up downstairs? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think they've spotted the guys, but I don't want you to come out of your bedroom, okay? I want you to stay there until I tell you it's safe, all right? Okay. The deputies are out there. <laughs> if you were to guess how old he was, would you be able to tell me? Pardon me? Uh, his 20 to 30. 20 to 30 is white male? Yeah. Twenty to thirty white male tall. Is someone calling to you, Chloe? No. Okay. I thought I heard one of them. It's very important that you don't touch anything, okay? Did, did you notice if they had gloves on or anything? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. Okay. I want you to think real hard when you look and you saw them getting in the drawers. I want you to look real, think really hard. Did you see any gloves on their hands? Yes, I think so. I think black gloves. Black gloves. Do 
Okay, any idea where your dog might be downstairs? No idea. I don't hear her anymore. But she did make noise at one point? No, I just heard her walking around downstairs. Okay, but you didn't, you never heard your dog bark? No, not once. Okay. Does the dog usually bark? No, not at all. Oh, okay. So it doesn't warn you if there's strangers around or someone no, not she's a very friendly dog. Okay. Is she used to having people in and out of the house quite frequently? Like, do you have friends over a lot, mom and yeah. dad? Okay. You still under your bed? Yeah. All right. What I know is that, like, before this was happening, okay, someone was knocking on the door okay. before this happened, and I looked outside, and they had, like, a black van. A black van? Yeah, it was like a dark colored, not like, yeah. it was like a dark colored van. Okay, is it possible for you to look out the window and tell me if that van is still there? Oh no, I already looked out when we were walking around downstairs. Okay, so the van was gone? Yeah. Okay, and you said it was a dark color van? Yeah. So do you think they were dropped off and then the van pulled away? Uh, and this happened. Okay, hold on one moment. Can I get the air? Uh, you know, on Hammond, the caller believes that these two suspects were dropped off by a dark colored van. It pulled away and then she heard the subjects inside the house. Did the van have windows? Yeah, a lot. Okay. She also states that it has lots of windows. Do you know if one had a black jacket? Okay. That's what she saw too, Rachel. They knocked on her door first. Quote, you're doing a really good job. These officers got a really good description of them. Hi. My cat's with me right now. She's under the bed with me. Okay, okay. I just want you to be safe right now, okay? So I'll let you know when the deputies are coming back to the house. But you're not hearing any more noises downstairs? No. Did you hear any doors slamming any time that you were talking to me? No. Okay.
Around your house, Chloe? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Old. Okay. Old ones, okay. Someone to go to the house and check the house. She's still under the bed. Okay. Okay. I have a dog with a um, an officer at your house with a German Shepherd dog. Okay. Is your dog? They're at your house. Okay. I just heard my dog like flat of tears. Can you let him know she has a lab inside the house? She takes that dog and we're going to have a dog fight. She has a, a loose dog inside the house, a lab. Okay. Okay, I was wrong. The, the dog isn't on scene yet. Our canine dog. I don't think anyone's in the house anymore, but I don't know if they Okay, listen, I've got a command officer that's there. I'll tell you in just a moment. I, I do have an officer that's out there at the house. And you may hear him come in and walk around, okay? Okay. Can I get out of the bed once you hear him? Once, once, I, once you hear from them, you can get out, yes. But he is definitely at the house. Okay. Is it MC1 that's out at the house? Can you tell him that the girl's name is Chloe? Her name is Chloe, if he'll call for her when he's inside. Yeah, she's under the bed. Okay, he's going to walk up to the door now, okay? Okay. The front door? The front door's locked. Okay. He'll figure that out. I want you to... My partner just told him when he's inside to call your name. Okay. Someone's knocking at the door. That's him, right? Yeah, that's him. Should I go and get it? Yeah, you can go get it. Okay. Ask who it is, Chloe. I don't see him anymore. Okay, he might be coming in through the garage. Can I go down? Where are you at, Chloe? Can he see you? I just saw him. He's okay. walking to the next. He's walking next door. Okay. He's running. Chloe, do you have a bathroom downstairs there? Yeah. Okay, I want you to go in that bathroom and lock the door until I tell you, okay? So what do you want me to do? I haven't heard any more from him, so I'm going to wait. Are you in the bathroom, Chloe? Yeah, I'm oh. Okay.
Was your um, garage door open? Open there's a side door okay. from my garage. I see the cop. Okay. He's walking in front of my house. Okay. Okay. Do you want me to go get the door? Okay. She's coming to the door. Is uh, do you can't? I found him. Okay. All right. I'll let you go, Chloe. You did very, very good. Very brave. Okay, bye, bye. Bye. The men were identified as Daniel Paul Lathan and Michael Thomas Zdanikowicz. Police saw them walking from the home. They caught one of the men straight away. The other was tracked down with a canine unit. The men chose to waive their preliminary hearing, and Chloe Simington got to see the two men she helped capture in person. According to Click On Detroit, Chloe commented saying, I was nervous, I guess, but it was fine. I had nothing to be nervous about, but I want them in jail for a really long time. That's all I want at this point. And Chloe would get her wish, at least partially. On June 28, 2009, the judge threw the book at Daniel Paul Laughlin. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison with the possibility of parole after serving 13 years. If released early, he can be a free man on December 14, 2024. Michael Thomas Adenikowicz all but got away with it. He took advantage of the Holmes Youthful Training Act. Since he was 19 years old, he qualified for this act. The sentence? Michael Thomas Adenikowicz only had to comply to the judge's order for three years, and the crime was wiped from his records. What these orders were are anyone's guess, as there isn't a record. And if you think the punishment fit the crime, well... I leave that to you, listener. comes to therapy and psychiatry, getting the help you need has never been so simple. When you're able to access your provider from the comfort of your own device, it means therapy can be on your schedule. And alleviating the wait times to get an appointment or the travel time to an office can free up time for the rest of your life. Talkspace is so convenient and accessible. It helps me feel supported around the clock. In the past, when I've been searching for a therapist, it's been hard to get in. The wait times are long, often three weeks out. And when you need one now, that's where Talkspace comes in. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your own home. Talkspace lets you send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the Talkspace platform 24-7. With Talkspace, you set goals with your therapist, and they hold you accountable and make sure you're really progressing. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code OBSCURA to get $100 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's OBSCURA and Talkspace.com. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire.
In the last decade, online dating has become increasingly mainstream. According to the website Statista, it is anticipated that 50 million Americans will use online dating services in 2022. While some succeed in finding love on dating apps, those less fortunate encounter an unrelenting nightmare. When 24-year-old Sydney Louf met her online date, Audrey, in November 2017, she thought she had met the woman of her dreams. In actuality, this encounter was really just a way of ensnaring Sydney in a trap set by a depraved man and his accomplice. This case reveals the deceit that can be lurking on the other side of the screen. With all the twists and turns, it plays out like a bizarre film. But this case also conveys a sobering truth. When it comes to online dating, no one is safe. Sydney Loof was known by all who knew her as a kind-hearted and generous person. Born on August 21st, 1993, in rural Arcadia, Nebraska, she was the middle child of George and Susie Loof. Her older brother Levi and younger sister Mackenzie had a close-knit bond with her from an early age. When Sydney was in second grade, the family moved to Neely, Nebraska, a small town in Antelope County known for its outdoor recreation. The Loof children spent their childhood immersed in nature. Sydney loved fishing, hiking, and golfing. She also had a soft spot for animals of any kind. One of her favorite places to visit was Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. All three siblings attended Neely Oakdale Public Schools, where both their parents are still currently employed. Susie Loof has been an elementary special education teacher for nearly two decades, and George Loof has served as the principal of Neely Oakdale High School for over 15 years. Throughout her high school years, Sydney became increasingly involved in sports. She played basketball, volleyball, and golf while she was exploring the creative side in school plays and being a part of the school band. Sydney made friends easily and had a certain magnetism that drew people to her. In 2011, she graduated from the same high school where her father was principal. After high school, Sydney briefly attended Northeast Community College before deciding to enter the workforce. She began working at the Norfolk location of Menards, a Midwest home improvement retail chain. Two years into employment, she requested a transfer to the Menards in Lincoln. It was roughly two and a half hours from her family in Neely, but Sydney stayed in touch with them constantly. Since moving to Lincoln, she called or texted her mother three to four times a week on average. Sydney got her own apartment and enjoyed the autonomy that came with living within driving distance but not too close to her parents. While working at the Lincoln's Menard, Sydney made a lot of friends. She was loved by her co-workers, who were frequently in awe of Sydney's compassion. In early 2017, when she discovered that a younger male co-worker was living in substandard conditions, she invited him to stay at her apartment. For several weeks, Sydney schooled him on financial literacy and gave him tips on personal hygiene until he got on his feet. Tara Gehrig, one of Sydney's friends, told her she was crazy. She told the Fremont Tribune Sydney, Everybody needs help at some point in their life and I feel as if I can help him. Remarkably, this was one of three people Sydney had taken under her wing. She simply got a lot of joy from helping those less fortunate than her. At the same time, she was looking into additional employment to better herself. She didn't struggle financially, but was trying to find her own path in life. Sydney reportedly hoped to work as a vet tech and live somewhere surrounded by natural beauty like Colorado. It wasn't all smooth sailing for Sydney. Ever since high school, she struggled with depression and anxiety. It was a bumpy road trying to find the right antidepressant. More recently, Sydney felt her medication was no longer working. On the weekend of November 11th and 12th, 2017, she paid her parents a visit in Eli to discuss her latest mental health struggles. Her mom drove back with her to Lincoln on Sunday morning then took her out to eat later that day. Sydney had an appointment with her cousin, a general practitioner in Lincoln, the following day. 
They discussed different medication options, and within a few days, Sydney was feeling much more upbeat. Aside from getting her mental health in balance, Sydney also longed to have someone special in her life. Like so many other 20-somethings, she relied on dating apps to connect with a potential companion. On November 14th, Sydney had a first date with 24-year-old Audrey, who she met on Tinder. The woman, whose real name was Bailey Boswell, was beautiful, athletic, and outgoing. According to later testimony from Boswell, she picked Sydney up from her apartment and they drove around Lincoln for a few hours while smoking marijuana. The next day, Boswell asked her on a second date and Sydney happily agreed. Elated by this newfound connection, Sydney told several friends about the date. She described Boswell as her dream girl in texts to friends and even sent a picture of Audrey to one Lincoln friend, Brooklyn McChrystal. The following day, on November 15th, Sydney excitedly prepared for her date. She posted a selfie to Snapchat displaying the caption, Ready for my date. According to the Antelope County News, her mother Susie took a screenshot of the image, then texted Sydney, You didn't tell me you had a date. But her daughter never responded, which didn't concern Susie at that point. She figured Sydney was preoccupied with her date and she didn't hear from her the next day. The panic started to set in the following evening. Sydney's little sister, Mackenzie, was flooded with messages from Sydney's friends saying no one had heard from her. Concerned co-workers also messaged Mackenzie to tell her Sydney hadn't showed up for her shift at Menards that morning. Susie made several attempts to call and text her daughter, but couldn't reach her. Growing increasingly worried, Susie Loof reached out to the Lincoln Police Department to alert them of the situation. They agreed to send an officer to do a wellness check, but when they did, they found her apartment unoccupied. The next day, George and Susie Loof drove to Sydney's apartment and found her car still in the driveway. The landlord unlocked the apartment and let them in, but there was no sign of Sydney. What made them genuinely fearful was the sight of Sydney's cat, Mimsy, who was left there alone, without food or water. Their daughter loved all animals, especially her beloved cat. She would never abandon her. Sydney's loved ones ran through dozens of scenarios in their heads about what may have happened. No one could have ever guessed just how wrong her Tinder date went the night she disappeared. But like anything else... The truth always has a way of coming out, eventually. It is impossible to know how much of her true identity Bailey Boswell, aka Audrey, revealed to Sydney. There are some commonalities in their backgrounds. They both grew up in a small, midwestern town. Boswell's hometown of Leon, Iowa, had a population of around 2,000. Both women were also heavily involved in athletics. Boswell was considered a standout on the high school basketball team, landing her a partial scholarship to the now-defunct AIB School of Business in Des Moines. We can imagine Boswell and Sidney Loof bonded over their athleticism in small-town childhoods. Things took a dark turn during Boswell's college years. She was allegedly sexually assaulted several times by an abusive boyfriend, who pushed her into escort services This trauma was life-changing, setting her on a path of deliberate self-destruction. Eventually, she met Aubrey Trail, a career criminal who was nearly 30 years older than her. They entered into a sugar daddy relationship, which has also become more common in the area of online dating. In a standard sugar daddy and sugar baby arrangement, older men will offer gifts, lavish trips, and sometimes monthly allowances in exchange for the companionship of a younger woman. Boswell was Trail's main sugar baby. She helped recruit other women to engage in group sex and the partying lifestyle Trail favored. Trail had a rap sheet that dated back to 1999. The Iowa native had numerous theft charges, one of which resulted in a five-year prison sentence. There was another four-year prison term in Missouri for passing several bad checks to an antique dealer. 
Despite his criminal history, Trail continued to deal antiques throughout southeast Nebraska. He was a well-practiced scammer by the time he became involved with Boswell. They shared an apartment in Wilbur, Nebraska, located 36 miles southwest of Lincoln. Part of their arrangement was having Boswell assist in Trail scams involving antiques and rare coins. There were at least three other young women who had entered into arrangements with Trail. Each time, he laid out his expectations of the women, and they consented. The exception was Sydney Louf. She was blindsided by the moment she entered Trail and Boswell's home. Boswell wasn't a single woman looking for love. She was merely bait. In the days following Sydney's disappearance, Lincoln police searched for clues of her whereabouts. Detectives worked with the state FBI to comb through her social media accounts, debit and credit statements, and cell phone records, hoping to encounter what they referred to as an electronic breadcrumb trail. Meanwhile, the case attracted media attention both domestically and abroad. The Huffington Post, People Magazine, and Good Morning America all covered what was then a missing person case. The pressure was on to figure out what had happened to Sydney and track her down if she was alive. The first big break was in a case from an undercover operation. It was completely unofficial, but the results were a game changer. Brooklyn McChrystal, the friend who had received a photo of Boswell, set up a fake Tinder profile to get her attention. McChrystal connected with Audrey, and it wasn't long before Boswell shared her contact information in the interest of setting up a first meeting. McChrystal shared Boswell's cell phone number and social media accounts with detectives. They finally had a solid lead. And while Trail and Boswell may have been identified eventually, it would have taken much longer for investigators to track them down without McChrystal's help. It was a momentary triumph that would lead to a series of startling discoveries. On November 29, 13 days after Sydney was reported missing, Lincoln police publicly deemed Trail and Boswell persons of interest. Days prior, their landlord had notified Wilbur police about the strong smell of bleach coming from the couple's apartment. Trail and Boswell subsequently posted a trio of bizarre videos to Facebook defending themselves against allegations, insisting they had no involvement in Luf's disappearance. Trail did most of the talking. He was quoted by the Daily Beast as saying, You've already crucified us in the newspapers. You've already crucified us on Facebook. You know, in America, I sure thought it was a trial first, but I guess not. They're chasing us around like dogs. I wish the family the best. I wish Sydney the best. But as far as the police department, fuck you. Antagonizing law enforcement is probably not the best course of action when you're at the center of a missing persons case. The couple had also left town right after Luf's disappearance, elevating suspicion already cast on them. While police tried to track down Trail and Boswell, a search warrant was obtained for their Wilbur apartment. Aside from the overwhelming odor of bleach, detectives also noticed how the room seemed unusually clean, like it had been meticulously scrubbed down. The search also turned up some damning evidence that hinted at what transpired before Sydney went missing. There was a dog leash despite the couple not being dog owners, zip ties, a sauna suit with the crotch cut out, a hatchet, and a book on human anatomy. Perhaps the most alarming finding was a plastic drop cloth smeared with blood. By using Boswell's cell phone pings, detectives were able to track where she and Trail were hiding out. It appeared they had plans to hike across the border to Mexico. A map of Mexico, sleeping bags, and other camping supplies were found in their car. They were arrested at a Branson, Missouri hotel on November 30th for unrelated fraud charges. They had allegedly transported stolen goods from across state lines. Once they were transported back to Nebraska, Trail and Boswell were held at the Saline County Jail. The investigation pressed on, with even more evidence pointing to foul play and the couple's direct involvement. Detectives examined surveillance footage from the Menards where Sydney worked in the days leading up to her date with Boswell. 
They were stunned to see Trail in the store on November 15th, eyeballing Sydney. They were able to determine through the video's timestamps and cell phone records that he called her right after checking out Sydney. Boswell then set up their second date. There was additional security footage from the same day pulled from a Lincoln Home Depot. It captured Boswell and Trail shopping for tools. Based on store records, one of the items was a hacksaw. That's when investigators took a deeper dive into the locational pings from Boswell's cell phone. By retracing Boswell's movements in the hours before and after the nights of their second day, detectives were led to several gravel roads in rural Clay County. On December 4, 2017, three weeks after Sidney Loof was reported missing, investigators came across their biggest break in the case yet. In Edgar, Nebraska, roughly 90 miles southwest of Lincoln, a human arm was spotted sticking out of a plastic garbage bag, thrown into a ditch. This discovery prompted subsequent searches. In total, 13 garbage bags were found scattering on neighboring isolated roads. All of the bags were filled with human remains. It was clear the victim had been meticulously dismembered and then tossed away like trash. To detectives, this showed a blatant disregard for human life and the calculated cover-up of a crime. Identifying the victim would have been extremely difficult had it not been for Sidney's tattoos. In addition, one of the garbage bags also contained a latex glove smeared with blood. Testing revealed a positive match with Sidney's blood. An autopsy would later reveal her cause of death was most likely suffocation. Bruises seen on the human remains suggested Sydney had fought for her life. Some remains were never recovered, including Sydney's organs and, inexplicably, her left upper arm. What they had found not only brought detectives much closer to indicating Boswell and Trail, it also offered the Lou family some much-needed closure. While mourning the tragic news of her death, Sydney's loved ones conveyed just how much she was missed. Her mother, Susie, told the Lincoln Journal Star she was loved by so many more people than she could ever have imagined. While it was consolation to have answers, Sydney's loved ones knew they still had a long road ahead. Luckily, the outpouring of support continued. A candlelit vigil held at Lincoln's sunken gardens brought over 100 people to gather. In addition, Money was raised by Sydney's Menard's co-workers, which was used by the family to purchase three memorial plaques. These plaques were affixed to benches at places Sydney loved, one at a Sydney park in Neely, and the other two at Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium. It was how Sydney would want to be memorialized, by honoring who she was, not dwelling on the tragedy of her premature death. But those closest to her wouldn't be able to justify putting her to rest until her killers could be brought to justice. With evidence mounting against Trail and Boswell, Lincoln police questioned them again. This time, Trail immediately confessed. He admitted that on the night Sydney was last seen alive, he engaged in what he referred to as consensual BDSM play with Louv and two other women. According to Trail, these other women had paid him $15,000 to film the erotic interaction, during which he used an extension cord to choke Sidney Loof, but the erotically charged asphyxiation was taken too far, and he accidentally killed her in the process. In a moment of panic, he had chopped up the body and had hidden it so he wouldn't get caught. Trail concluded his confession by insisting Boswell hadn't been responsible for Sidney's death, the only criminal act she committed, according to Trail, was helping to dispose of her body. When Boswell was interrogated, she corroborated her boyfriend's account. She said she had been sleeping on the couch while filming went on and wasn't present when Sidney died. While investigators were pleased to have a confession, Trail and Boswell's version of events didn't coincide with evidence they had gathered. The text messages exchanged between the two women didn't suggest Sydney had prior knowledge of a man or other woman being involved in their second date. Sydney had thought all along that she was solely involved with Boswell. What's more, 
There was no physical evidence that anyone other than Trail, Boswell, and Sidney Loof had been present at the crime scene. Trail and Boswell would be tried separately for their crime, with a third charge of conspiracy to commit murder tacked onto the charges of first-degree murder and the unlawful disposal of human remains. According to Medium, while in jail awaiting trial, they were caught exchanging coded messages to line up their stories. Trail wanted to take all the blame and paint Boswell as the victim. It would be up to two sets of jurors to decide what punishment fit the crime. The trial of Aubrey Trail began six months later in June 2009. He had already entered a guilty plea for one of the three charges for the improper disposal of a body. Things took a dramatic turn. Less than a week into the murder trial, on June 24th, Trail caused a major disruption in court, having an extreme outburst. According to KMTV3 Omaha, he shouted, Bailey is an innocent, and I curse you all, before slashing his neck three or four times with a shiv. The defendant collapsed in his wheelchair and had to be rushed to a nearby hospital to get stitches. Proceedings resumed while Trail waived his right to be there. When he returned two days later, Judge Vicki Johnson ordered that he be placed and handcuffed. His public spectacle painted him as volatile and violent in the minds of the juror. Three anonymous young women testified about their connection to Trail. The first to testify, who we'll call Witness A, was a 22-year-old who had met Boswell on Tinder. She claimed the defendant had convinced her she was a witch who could only gain special powers by killing someone. Trail claimed to be a vampire who led a coven of 12 or 13 witches, and Witness A could join them if she did as she was told. Witness B had a similar experience but denied believing in the supernatural elements of Trail and Boswell's lifestyle. According to 3 News Now Omaha, she said, They were talking more and more about potential murder, so I did believe this part of the story was true, that they were capable of it. Witness C had similar comments about the couple, telling the jury she heard them discuss torture and murder often. As quoted by 3 News Now Omaha, she said Boswell mainly talked about dismembering people, breaking fingernails, breaking fingers. Like the other two women, Witness C had endured physical punishment if she was perceived as defying Trailer Boswell. While on the stand, Trail admitted he had previously fabricated a lot of details. He was finally going to tell the truth, that Sidney had initially met them in March 2017 and then resurfaced in November, just before her death because she needed money. According to 3 News Now Omaha, Trail acknowledged Sidney Loof died that night, so I later came up with the story to try to protect me and her. It was only me, Bailey, and Sidney there that night. He said all the talk of witches and vampires was a complete lie, but at that point he had already proven to the jury his testimony was unreliable. After deliberating Trail's fate for three hours, the jury returned with a verdict. Guilty on all counts. Aubrey Trail would have a long wait until his sentencing hearing. In early 2020, the global COVID-19 pandemic caused countless court proceedings to be delayed. On June 9, 2021, Trail was brought back to Saline County Court. Sidney Loof's family sat in the front row inside the courtroom. Before Judge Johnson handed down Trail's sentence, she asked if he wanted to make a statement. He chose to speak honestly, probably for the first time since his arrest four years ago. According to KSNB News, he addressed the victim's family and said, I lured her there to try and pull her into our group, but I once sat Sydney down and explained to her our criminal activities and group sex I knew I had made a big mistake. Trail said that when Sydney panicked, after zip-tying her hands, he carried her into a bathroom where he strangled her using an extension cord. Bailey Boswell was granted a change of venue for her trial since at that point there was too much local media coverage for a fair trial. She faced the same three charges as Trail. The four-week trial began on September 25, 2020, in the central Nebraska city of Lexington. Boswell also faced the possibility of a death sentence. If that was the outcome... Boswell would be the first woman in Nebraska ever sent to death row. 
Opening statements took the 12-member jury through a timeline of events leading up to Sidney Luth's death. Boswell's attorney, Todd Lancaster, merely reminded jurors to carefully examine the facts and not to be swayed by graphic images they would be shown. There was a lot of crossover evidence from Trail's trial, used by prosecutor at Boswell's trial. Again, jurors were shown video surveillance of Boswell and Trail, shopping for tools used in the homicide and testimony from the medical examiner. Closing statements were made by the defense and prosecution on October 13th. Prosecutor Mike Gwynon asked the jury to find the defendant guilty of all three counts, affirming that facts signifying Boswell's guilt. KNOP News reported Gwynon stated, If nothing else, this case is about an orgasmic desire to torture and kill. I'm suggesting to you Miss Loof was pounced upon. I'm not suggesting to you that Miss Boswell killed Loof alone, but in tandem with Trail. He also reminded the jury about the victim's defense wound, saying, She died on that floor in that apartment that night, looking her killers in the eyes, eyeball to eyeball, that she fought for her life. Defense attorney Todd Lancaster said Boswell was a victim of Trail, just as much as the other women they were involved with. He emphasized the vulnerable state his client was in when she met Trail. She had just ended an abusive relationship with the father of her child and was living alone while working as a waitress in Princeton, Missouri. After three hours of deliberation, the same amount of time needed to reach a verdict at Trail's trial, Boswell was found guilty on all accounts. Sentencing proceedings were held over the course of three days in early July 2021. It would be up to a three-judge panel to assess if Boswell would be sentenced to death, like her accomplice, or spend the rest of her life incarcerated. Defense attorney Todd Lancaster argued mitigating factors should be weighed in their determination. He said Boswell's biological father was murdered in a drug deal gone wrong when she was less than two years old. Years of sexual and emotional trauma during her college years resulted in post-traumatic stress disorder, according to a forensic psychologist's testimony. But the chief prosecutor from the Nebraska AG's office, Doug Warner, argued against showing remorse for the defendant. Boswell had signed up on a website known for enabling arrangements between sugar daddies and women seeking financial support, where she had met her accomplice. Several of Boswell's family members delivered videotaped testimony to plead with the judges. They all argued her life should be spared, not only for their sake, but for the sake of Boswell's five-year-old daughter, Nala. But prosecutor Doug Warner emphasized that Boswell had lost custody of Nala because of drug abuse and neglect, actions that were her own doing. Boswell testified briefly to also plead with the judges. As quoted in the Omaha World Herald, she said, For my daughter's sake, please don't take my life. She needs a mommy. Two of the three judges recommended Boswell be put to death, but one judge wasn't convinced the state had proven beyond a reasonable doubt the burden of proof was met. Without the unanimous verdict required for the death penalty, Boswell was sentenced to a life in prison without the possibility of parole. The Loof family reacted to Boswell's sentence with disappointment. George Loof told the Omaha World Herald, I believe that she's guilty or guiltier. If it wasn't for her, my daughter would have never been there. If this doesn't warrant the death penalty, I feel Nebraska should just get rid of it. At the same time, Sydney's loved ones are relieved both her killers will never again see the light of day. In June 2020, an Omaha-based nonprofit known as the Set Me Free Project set up an annual scholarship in Sydney Loof's memory. The organization visits schools where they present on human trafficking, social media, and healthy relationships. Those awarded the Sydney Loof Memorial Scholarship have sought degrees related to ending human trafficking, cybersecurity, and online safety. With any luck, perhaps future generations will make it safer to connect with others online. Until then, the memory of Sydney Loof will live on, and those who knew her. Her kindness and compassion continues to touch anyone who hears her tragic tale. And I think that wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.